I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. I've been saying those words since I was his age. I didn't really know what they meant then. I knew it was important, that it was special. I loved being an American, but who knew what allegiance was? My idea of freedom was getting outside and playing as hard as I could. Now that I'm a dad, those words mean more than ever. I want my son to grow up strong in the land of the free. I want him to be as brave as his great-grandfather who fought for the freedom of his country. And I want him to use that liberty to do good and enjoy this blessed life we share. But I want more for him than just that, than just to love being an American. I want him to understand that this is his country, but it's not his home. Someone besides those brave soldiers died so that my son could be free. Free forever. Free from sin. Free to run the path God's called him to with everything he's got. My prayer is that my son will pledge his first allegiance to his Lord. And then learn to love his country while longing for his home. I think that's what freedom is for. Good morning. That's a big good morning. I thought we'd have a smaller crowd here today, and uh, it's a little smaller, but it's a good good morning. And uh, I want to welcome all of you guys to Grace Community Church at Deerfoot. Maybe you are visiting with us for the first time. We want to welcome you. Uh, all of those who are watching from abroad, we want to welcome you guys. Um, and this morning, we have the privilege of hearing from Daryl Munkus. Um, many of you guys know Daryl. He has taught um, many Sunday school classes through the last few years. He's a graduate of Grace School of Theology, and we are looking forward to what the Lord uh, has laid upon his heart. Our beloved pastor, I think he's going to be back from vacation, uh, I think tomorrow, and, uh, and we should uh, see him back here next week. So it's fitting that we, uh, we just watched that video um, and that you and I as believers are grateful um, for the freedoms we have in this country, right? Um, I was doing a college lesson with my son last week, and I was reminded that much of our independence was founded upon religious freedom. They didn't want to be told um, 
how to worship God. They didn't want to have the religion of the state. Um, and so we've been given liberty. We're here today in part because of that liberty that we have. But how much more grateful should we be because of the liberty we've been given from the curse of sin, right? Um, we are eternally grateful for that. And that's why we're here today. And um, just want to um, invite you guys to stand with me now. I want to read um, some verses um, that capture that curse of sin that happened to us um, when Adam and Eve first sinned. Romans 5:12 says this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So from the moment Adam and Eve sinned, everything died. Everything. Everything that was created, every idea, um, every relationship, everything died. Romans 5.17 says this, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ. This morning, um, the place I've been in for the last few months is God reminding me that life comes only from his son, Jesus. Everything else is dead. So if you think about it, um, careers, relationships, marriages, um, even ministry is dead less the life of Christ. That is the only life that we really have today. The world says if you're breathing, you're alive. God says if you have Jesus, you're alive, right? John uh, chapter 1 verse 4 says this about that life. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That could be translated, that little word light right there is the same as life. So it could be translated as this. In him was life, and the life was the life of men. So we're going to be singing about and just focused on the life of Christ this morning. It is the only true source of life. Let's all sing together. And I search the world It couldn't fill me. A man's empty praise and treasures that fade are never enough. Then you came along and put me back together. And every desire is now satisfied. There's nothing better than you. There's nothing better than you, Lord. There's nothing, nothing is better than you. Oh, I'm not afraid to show you my Lord, you've seen them all, and you still call me friend. 
Because the God of the mountain Is the God of the valley There's not a place Your mercy and grace Won't find me again Oh, there's nothing Better than you There's nothing Nothing better than him. He's the best, right? He's worth us building our life upon. Amen. Nothing else. Nothing else has any foundation. It's all like sand. He's the only one that's worth building our life upon.
next song um, maybe it's appropriate that you make it your prayer um, I'll come to the altar 
because we've sung about um, the source of one life, um, the tendency. You'll remember, um, I think it was in Galatians, Paul talked about the fact that we um, so often return again um, to a yoke of slavery. Anybody relate to that? We've been freed from the power of sin um, and the, the penalty of sin, yet we as humans in our flesh, we, we tend to go back to the things that we know, sinful things that we know. So I want to encourage you guys to make this song a prayer um, and uh, just think about uh, Jesus being the one source of life.
Testing. All right, we're good to go now. I remember when that one was just a little one not long ago. Wow, they're growing up fast. So my little girl, she's not an elementary school kid anymore. Now she's a middle schooler. So, <laughs> Well, I want to take a minute this morning and thank the ladies of this church who were so generous in giving to mama and papa when they, they're going back they had some needs going back to the philippines and you guys were so generous and just want to thank you for that and uh they're back they're back safely so thank you for your prayers so uh a little praise uh aubrey went to bible camp uh ponderosa bible camp uh yep been up there it's you should go up there uh saw Brant when I was up there. He said, there's not a building here we haven't touched. So, and uh, it was great. She, uh, she came home and she said, uh, Daddy, I want to be baptized. So, we're thankful. Very thankful. So, uh, I want to thank Thad for giving me the opportunity this morning to come and share with you. Uh, we're going to be looking at a particular text in the book of Mark. So if you want to turn to Mark chapter 4, we're going to be looking at verses 35 to 41. If you want to turn there with you uh, or with me in your Bible. So uh, first of all, may God bless all of you uh, on this 4th of July weekend. You know, July 4th, 1776, delegates from the 13 British colonies adopted the Declaration of Independence and consequently 
July 4th has been recognized by our government as a, as a holiday since 1941, but we've actually celebrated Independence Day uh, really since uh, on July 4th, since the 18th century. Uh, and as you know, this is a time of year where we celebrate and we reflect on the birth of our nation as well as the ideals of liberty and freedom. Uh, and as believers, may God bless you as you reflect on his greatest blessing, the gift of salvation that if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Uh, genuine freedoms not procured by the state through man-made precepts, but through the God-man who has set us free from the bondage of sin. So may God bless you this holiday as you celebrate genuine freedom with your family and with your friends. So if you would, rise up and uh, read with me the text this morning. So. Um, and I'm finding that my eyes are, I can't see the way that I used to be able to, so I think I can read from up there a little better. So, uh, Verse 35, on that day when evening came, he said to them, let's go over to the other side. And after dismissing the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a fierce gale of wind developed, and the waves were breaking over the boat, so much that the boat was already filling with water. And yet Jesus himself was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down, and it became perfectly calm. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Pray with me. Father, we bless you for this record of truth. And we admit that on this particular time of year where we celebrate our birth as a nation that uh, we are a little anxious about what's happening in our country. Uh, all of us have felt it. So, But we are also thankful for your faithfulness to us. Uh, so as we look at this text this morning and as we examine it, we pray that at the conclusion of this test, this uh, text and at this lesson today that we might have and exhibit more confidence in you and in your abilities. So, as the God-man, bless us as we partake this morning. We ask this for the sake of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I think all of us have to admit that uh, we find the times in which we're living to be quite trying. Uh, it's a very trying time in our nation's history. And in life, James says, we encounter trials of various kinds. And as we look at the state of our country and our world today, it becomes apparent that we're at the precipice of 
a very unusual storm, and a storm that threatens our liberties. And the very heart of the matter is integrity in commercial transactions. It's a sin problem. <laughs> uh, and what that's spawned all kinds of other problems, but uh, to simplify it, it's a, a sin problem. The hoarding of money. Uh, in the Bible, weights and measures were used for commercial transactions. Uh, oftentimes, they were scaled out of balance deliberately uh, for the merchant so that they could scale them in their favor, set them advantageously. Uh, and nobody likes being cheated. Uh, Solomon wrote, a false balance is an abomination to the Lord. Uh, but a just weight is his delight. Uh, the Bible speaks of money as a root from which all sorts of evil spawns. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And there's nothing, there's nothing inherently wrong with money itself. Uh, it can be used for good. It can be used for evil. And I believe that God wants us to earn money using the skills and the talents with which he has blessed us, allowing us to provide for ourselves and our family and, and also help others in times of need. A uh, great scholar by the name of Hebert, he uh, had this to say with regard to this verse. He said, the connotation in the love of money is not the acquisition of wealth, in order that it may be used in prodigal expenditure, but rather the miserly accumulation and hoarding of money for the very love of it. That which should be a means to support life is made the end of life itself. Uh, the Greek word here for love here is philaguria, uh, which means simply covetousness, uh, the love of money, seeing money as an end in itself, and that's a problem. Uh, Article 1, Section 10, Clause 1 of the U.S. Constitution states that no state shall make anything but gold and silver coin a tender in payment of debts. Uh, God's the creator of gold and silver, and he's placed gold and silver deposits throughout the world for monetary utility, used not only in Jewish culture, but throughout cultures the world over. And historically, precious metals have served as a balance because they can be weighed, and they can be measured. As a matter of fact, there are there are seven units of measurement that are used in, uh, you know, for coinage used in the Bible. Uh, you have the talent, and the mina, the shekel, the becca, the garah, the pim, and the kezatah. Actually, six of the units of measurements, we still know what those measurements are. Matter of fact, five of them still find their values in the Bible itself. And additionally, God's created fixed quantities of precious metals, which can serve as a hedge to prevent, prevent things like inflation or deflation. But over the last century around the world, gold and silver have been removed 
from their monetary roles and in so doing have created huge economic imbalances, shorts, lies on paper. Uh, Solomon said, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. Uh, and due to these imbalances, our current financial system is imploding. And today, as you know, no scales or weights are even used. And they haven't been for some time. And the system's reached a point where it can't be propped up anymore through money printing. And hence, this is why many of us, many of you have heard of the term Great Reset, right? Many of you have heard that. There's a lot of speculation about what this reset might look like. Will it be per purely digital? Uh, how would our individual liberties be affected by digital money? Can they just shut our money off if they don't like our behavior or what it is that we believe? Uh, will cash even remain uh, as it provides a, you know, a measure of freedom and anonymity in our transactions. Well, there's a lot of things to contemplate, but we do know this, that our present system was conceived in 1913, and since that time, the dollar has lost about 96.4% of its purchasing power. And it's been the world reserve currency for nearly 80 years, and because of that, we got everything out of balance. You got Inflation, stock markets plummeting, crypto plummeting, a lot of other bizarre things going on in our world because uh, it's been the world reserve currency. So what we're seeing, we're seeing an uprooting of the system and a complete restructuring of the world financial system. Uh, 20 years after that system was created, uh, you had the U.S. found itself in the middle of the depression. You had millions that were suffering. 25% uh, unemployment, uh, facing stiff fines and imprisonment. Citizens were coerced into exchanging their gold to the central banks to fight the depression, and they got $20.76 in paper currency per ounce. That's a lot of money back then. So and that was an adequate exchange in that day, for especially for people who had fallen on hard times. And people had an assumption when they went in for that, people assumed that the notes they exchanged for their gold were redeemable for gold as they had always been in the past and yet they later discovered that they wouldn't be getting their gold back and that paper currency they would receive would be continually devalued and since that day gold's increased about a hundred times in value and the dollars lost 96% of its purchasing power. So uh, a lot of historians and economists, they refer to this as the great gold heist of 1933. Matter of fact, uh, a resolution was passed and it made it illegal to require payment in gold or a particular kind of coin or currency and thus payment in gold was nullified and could only be made in official legal tender, which was paper currency. And also gold could not be used as a measure for how much legal, legal tender was owed. And then from 1933 to 1975, 
Under a national emergency, it became illegal to buy and hold gold coins, bars, or certificates in the U.S. Do you know that? It's illegal to do so. And 10 years, it faced stiff penalties. Uh, 10 years imprisonment and a fine, the value, twice the value of the gold that you, have, that you held. So the penalties were stiff. So, Moreover, in 1944, the U.S. dollar was fixed to gold at a rate of $35 an ounce at the time. It became the world's reserve currency under an agreement called the Bretton Woods Agreement. And this agreement allowed only foreign governments and central banks to have the authority to convert dollars into gold. But not even 30 years later, in 1971, even that link to gold was severed. And what that did is it ushered in our modern day system of fiat currency where there's nothing that backs the paper currencies. That's a Latin word, fiat, it means decree. And thus today, currencies all over the world no longer draw their value from fixed, measurable, socially agreed upon assets like gold and silver, but from policymakers who decree whatever they want and increase the money supply without limitations. Um, Looking for a way to kind of explain this succinctly, I found this one, pretty good one. Orrin Woodward said, he who creates the fool's gold controls the fools. (laughs) Uh, Each day, currencies oscillate in value due to the schematics which create artificial wealth through these expanded balance sheets and this is a wealth that's enriched through inflation and low interest rates and it robs the working class of their time of their labor and of their savings so we are in and we have been in a storm for quite some time and now we are in at the height of it so and you know that when you visit the gas pump so uh, in the prophet Micah's day, uh, dishonest scales and inaccurate weights were in rampant use during commercial transactions. Micah wrote, cannot justify wicked scales and a bag of deceptive weights. God declares such practices to be an abomination. Solomon wrote again, he said, differing weights and differing measures, both of them are abominable to the Lord. So let me ask you this. Has there been a mind at work operating cleverly and deceptively behind the scenes, having some dominion, influencing mind, influencing minds and orchestrating certain measures? You know, I ask you this, and some of you, you may have the thought of David Spade might come to mind or the church lady. If you remember from Saturday Night Live, who used to say, Satan. Um, you know, I, I used to think of that, and I used to be like everybody else, and thought that was funny. So, the laugh's on us, huh? You Bible-believing Christians, you're so comical. <laughs> you conspiracy theorists, right? That's how they... That's how they come after us, isn't it? What does the Bible say? 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He's crafty, isn't he? So, you know, we've been taught in school that the great wars of the 20th century were simply disagreements over the nature of the manufacture and distribution of goods. Stuff. And whether individuals or the collective should profit from the stuff. Life is just about stuff. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie The Usual Suspects, there's a character in there. His name's Kaiser Soze. He says this. He says, the greatest trick the devil ever, ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. And as you look at history, the economic theories, they get all the attention in the books, all the stuff. While the spiritual matters, they get far less, if any, consideration. So, you may recall Matthew 4, Satan tempted and offered Jesus instantaneous uh, control over all the kingdoms of the world, all the stuff. Uh, And the glory also associated with ruling over them if he would just do one thing. What was that? Disregard the sufferings of the cross. Now Jesus, of course, he declined Satan's offering, understood his role as the suffering servant who would have to endure the cross. And Satan knew that Jesus' crucifixion was paramount. And uh, it's the very reason why Satan offered Jesus the benefits of Messiahship without the sufferings of Calvary. And uh, this is exactly how the great deceiver operates, isn't it? Uh, He offers nothing but broken cisterns that hold no water. All he has to offer is stuff, nothing of eternal worth. And while Satan's crafty in his methodology to bring about tyranny, I believe that God is using him to bring darkness to light and usher in a period of revival. Do you believe that? He's done it throughout the course of history. Believe it. Pray it. Well, we're going to look at this storm here in Mark 4, and some of you may be anxious over this particular economic storm that's enveloped our world. I know I've experienced a great deal of that myself. (laughs) Perhaps you're experiencing a different uh, kind of storm. Maybe you're lonely. Maybe you've lost employment. I lost mine again. (laughs) And my second interview, I got hired again. So, uh, God's faithful. Maybe you're lonely. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe you've lost a loved one. Whatever the case, my prayer is that this text will provide you with some wisdom as to how to approach the storms of life and that our time today would serve as a great encouragement to you uh, in the days in which we live. So, now notice in this text, uh, it's a... It's a turn. It's a, from where Je- what Jesus has been doing. Jesus has been teaching, and now he begins to act again. 
And as Job said, his teachings and actions reveal the deep things of darkness and bring utter darkness into the light. Uh, Jesus reveals himself on a deeply personal level. God manifests in human flesh. And here we see the God-man having rub, he's rubbing shoulders here with darkened sinners teaching and working miracles to validate and to show that his teachings are divine and authentic. Uh, Verses 33 and 34, they kind of serve as a summary conclusion for the parables that were before, but also as a primer for the lesson that follows. Uh, Notice here, verse 33 and verse 34, and with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to understand it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his disciples. So Jesus is teaching privately through parables, earthly stories with divine meaning. And now these parables, they have kind of a dual role. They reveal the truth to those that are seeking, but they conceal the truth for those who are indifferent. Uh, And this was done so as not to provoke chaos, kind of like what we see uh, unfolding in our world today. I think a lot of people have come to the realization that uh, our media can't be trusted, and so a lot of people are turning to different outlets to try to obtain truth So, as to what's happening. But Jesus' parables were used like bait to captivate the interests of the multitudes to try to draw them out and to, and so they would seek more information and to get them to progress in their belief. And in the same way, what we do as believers, we, we put out bait, uh, when we witness to people, uh, we, we do that when we try to capture animals. We put out bait. And so Jesus is luring his prey away from danger and toward salvation, and that's what we do. That's what we do when we share our faith. They may see it's a trap, but by trusting Jesus, they would be free and have free purpose and joy in life. And so Jesus did this with his disciples, and this is how we are to function as his disciples today. I notice verse 35 begins another section here, and this records Jesus' demonstrations of power. And the first miracle that we encounter in this section is Jesus' calming of the storm in verses 35 to 41. These demonstrations were designed to teach his disciples who he really was, that he was the God-man, that he was sovereign even over a mighty storm. So whatever storms befall us, God seeks to teach us that he is divine and that he is sovereign and that he is benevolent and he is faithful. And yet the first thing here that he has to get the disciples to understand is that he is fully God and fully man. Uh, you know, at the start of Jesus' ministry, many believed that he was the Messiah, uh, John tells us that in the very first chapter of his gospel uh, that Andrew and Philip and Peter were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah. However, their understanding of what the Messiah was was another issue. Uh, Their understanding was that the Messiah was going to be a powerful military deliverer who was going to take Israel and ascend Israel above all the other nations. And that, that was what God's purpose was. So, but in this, you know, of course, this, of course, contrasts with uh, the biblical Messiah that was predicted in the Old Testament. 
that he would be a divine human person, fully God and fully man. And so the, what's happening here is the, the disciples are having a hard time with their preconceived notions of, what, of who the Messiah was. So they're having a difficult time understanding that he was both human and divine. And this is the very reason why Jesus had to reveal himself patiently and slowly and progressively and only by coming to the realization that Jesus was fully God could they truly appreciate the totality of Jesus' mission that he had come to die on the cross as our perfect sacrificial substitute as only one who is sinless could make such a sacrifice that would be acceptable to God and so uh, you know, we spend our entire lifetime growing and getting to know Jesus better. You know, we know him as the great physician, but do we really turn to him when we have physical needs? Or do we just go to the doctors for that? We also know him as the good shepherd, but do we genuinely trust him when we're facing runaway inflation that he can provide for our daily needs? Do we turn to him in prayer for his restoration and his provision and his direction and his sustenance no matter our lot in life? Uh, if he is Lord, we should continually turn to him as the one who can meet our needs as no one else can. Uh, and so the disciples here, we see they're a lot like us. They're slow to understand the totality and the uniqueness of Jesus' person among all mankind. And so these miracles are very important. They help us to appreciate the depth of Jesus' character. Uh, verse 35 here. And on that day, and this is the day that Jesus was teaching these disciples. And when evening had come, he said to them, his disciples, let us go over to the other side. So this is the, the other side of the lake, the Sea of Galilee. And interestingly, the other side is the Gentile area, the Decapolis, a league of ten Greco-Roman cities. And Jesus wants to take these men on a mission to the Gentiles, so he prepares them. And I'm sure there had to be some sort of cognitive dissonance going on, right, <laughs> among these disciples. Here is the Jewish Messiah, and he wants to go to these Gentiles. So here is Jesus. He's in the northwest section of the lake, the coastline, but now he's planning to go to the southeast side. And we know that from the verses that follow. Uh, verse 36, sorry. And leaving the multitudes, Jesus was standing in the boat a little offshore, speaking to the multitudes spread across the shoreline. And this is what teachers would do in that time and day. They would get on the, the boat and the, the water would kind of serve as a way to to, to move the sound toward the audience. And, uh, and so it says here in verse 36, And leaving the multitudes, they took Jesus along with them, uh, just as he was in the boat and the other boats were with him. Now notice it's the four fishermen, right, who take control. They took Jesus as this is what? <laughs> this is their area of expertise, right? <laughs> their area of expertise. We're the fishermen. You know, we get in these boats all the time. 
uh, and we got this, right? Isn't that the way we are in life? We got this. Can we do this in our ministry? Sure, certainly we can. Can we exhibit an attitude of self-reliance? You bet. What happens to trials in the face of self-reliance? They vaporize, don't they? Also, are they taking Jesus or is Jesus taking them? (laughs) Uh, There's some irony here, right? (laughs) Jesus says, I'll make you, you fishermen, fishers of men. What do fishers do? They set out bait, right? Well, Jesus is taking them on an expedition to do that very thing. But notice, Jesus, he doesn't go back to change his clothes. Uh, He's been tending to the needs of so many people that he hasn't slept. And we've seen, you know, people so desperate to get to Jesus that they even tore the roof off of a house to get into him. Jesus' life is just hectic. It's one thing after another. And notice it says, just as he was, he left in the boat. Evidently, this is the same boat that he had been standing in to address the crowd in the first verse of Mark 4. And there were other boats, probably fishing boats, that were with them as it was popular to follow Jesus. So, verse 37 And there arose a a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking all over the boat, so so much so that the boat was already filling up. So, and the Sea of Galilee—it's notorious for these fast-rising storms because of the geography and the typography of the area. And uh, they didn't see this coming. Obviously, the sea—it's located in what's a great geological fault. This area in that part of the world called the Great Rift Valley of Africa. Uh, it's 600 feet below the sea level, and then the, the Jordan Valley drops even further with the uh, Dead Sea, about 1,200 feet below sea level. Uh, and so you have, with the Great Rift Valley, you've got this hot air that is uh, you know, down in this valley, and it reacts to the cooler prevailing winds from the west that come over it and kickstarts storms. And they arise suddenly even on the Sea of Galilee to this day. So the disciples being fishermen, they'd been out on the boats thousands of times. And so obviously they had no idea they were being led into a storm while out on the water. They are taken by surprise. And the waves begin to break over the boat so much so that the boat is filling up. Uh, And notice here, I want you to notice that Jesus is with them. But the storm still arose. How many people do you know that believe that when we get saved that somehow life is just hunky-dory and no longer do we have to experience, you know, certain mishaps in life and our life becomes free of annoyances or disturbances, so... Well, that's a very unbiblical belief as this verse demonstrates so clearly. So, Jesus' company did not dismiss this storm. And neither does his company dismiss 
the storms of life. James wrote what? Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Paul wrote this, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Uh, God allows difficulties to enter our experience that we will learn as the disciples did here of Jesus' sufficiency, of Jesus' power, that it's he who enables us to pass through the storm and to trust him as the author and the perfecter of our faith. So as Lord, he's the captain who presides over our lives and cares for us as a monarch is to preside over and care for his people. Also notice this, conversely, just because you are encountering difficulty does not mean that God has abandoned you. We've all been a part of the devil's clown show over the last few years, right? (laughs) Uh, Where measures have been taken to uh, isolate us, personal devices, entertainment. You know what the purpose of entertainment is? It serves as a distraction. That's what it is. Now, that's not to say that good people don't use it as a means to minister to others. But if you have an evil intent, entertainment distracts us from what's going on. So we've had all these measures taken to isolate us, personal devices, social distancing, social media. You get social media shaming going on, okay? And all of us, as a result, been affected by these measures that have been unleashed on our world. Suicides are up. Depression's soared. Uh, Depression's, you know, it's soared. Counseling for children is on the rise. It's skyrocketing. Uh, just because you're going through a difficult time does not mean that God has abandoned you. Uh, if you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the very Spirit of God resides in you. And if you've placed your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, He's there. He is there with you. He has not abandoned you. So, the psalmist wrote, The Lord is my refuge and my shield. I put my hope in His word. So, keep your eyes fixed on Him because He uses trial. To, uh, for our beans and for an ends to drive you, to drive you to him. So verse 38, and he himself, Jesus, was in the stern on the back side of the boat asleep on the cushion. Note here, uh, Jesus is in the back of the boat. Why? Verse 36, what does it say? They took him. <laughs> Where'd they put him? We got this, Jesus. We're in control. They're in the front. They stuck him there. Because they are the experts, right? This is what we do. We trust in our strength, don't we? We trust in our own abilities when we face trials oftentimes. And yet, here is Jesus worn out trying to catch some sleep through a raging storm. He's so exhausted 
and you got the waves pounding up against the sides of the boat and the water spilling over into it. And the disciples awoke him and said to him, Teacher, Rabbi, do you not care that we are perishing? So they thought that they were going to perish in the middle of the sea. Now, just previously, they were so trusting, right? They were so trusting in their abilities, and yet here they're put into a calamitous situation and see Jesus asleep and conclude that he doesn't care about their situation. Do you not care that we are perishing? How often we draw the same conclusions, don't we? So, don't you care, Lord, that I'm in a fix here? Can't you see that our nation is being ripped apart? Do you not care? I can't make my way through this. You know, I pray and I pray. And I don't see anything happening. I read the good book for direction and I'm waffling back and forth in my faith, not knowing what decisions to make in life. And you don't care. Well, that's not true. Jesus cares. What did Jesus tell them in this passage? He said this, let us go over to the other side. Now, there's a Greek word there. It's the word dierkomahi. It's derived from the Greek word dia, meaning through, and from the Greek word erkomahi, meaning go. So they were not trusting him. Jesus said, let us go through. And it's quite clear that this is something that the Lord wanted to do here. That this calamity that's fallen upon our land is something what? It's something that God wants us to encounter. He has not abandoned us and he is not uncaring and it's all within his devices He was not going to hear, let these disciples perish. And he's not going to let us perish. They were not going to drown. It looked that way. But they were going to dierkomahi. They were going to, the Lord said, go through. Uh, Jesus said. so, So no matter how fierce the storm may be, we will dierkomahi. We will go through. Uh, verse 39. And being aroused, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. Interestingly, these very identical words, winds, ship, fear, perish, they're all spoken of in the first chapter of the book of Jonah. Did Jonah care? Jonah didn't care, did he? But Jesus does. Mark's the only gospel writer who recorded the words, hush, be still. Uh, And this expression was used by parents to address their children. Uh, Hush, be still. You're upset so unnecessarily. You know, Lucas, he can get so disturbed. He's so used to having the grandparents around all the time. And he gets everything he wants. So, all right. 
everything. Turn the channel, you know. He'll bring you the remote, you know, like, I'm, I don't want to watch this. I want to watch. I don't like that. He says that. I don't like, okay? All right? That's the way we are, isn't it? So you're upset unnecessarily. Quiet. Hush. So Jesus speaks to the creation as if it is his child. And the wind died down immediately and it became perfectly calm. So the storm responds to Jesus' voice just like a child does to its parent's voice. And Jesus demonstrates that he is the God-man by exercising his authority over the creation itself. Verse 40. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? Uh, The Greek word here is delos, which means cowardly or afraid. Why are you so cowardly, afraid, and without faith? And of all the people that should trust him, these are the men that he spent all this time with. You would think that they would trust him. But the disciples, you know, they had shown a certain level of faith before. You know, they believed that... He was probably the great prophet spoken of in Deuteronomy 18.18 who had come to reveal God more than any other prophet had yet done. And yet here, facing this fierce storm in the face of death, they demonstrate absolutely no trust in Jesus. And fear and faith are completely opposite terms. So Jesus had said that they would go through to the other side So progressively, Jesus is revealing to him that he is the God-man who has come to earth to offer himself for the sins of mankind, that he will suffer, that he will die and arise from the dead as he is going to to tell them in time and set up a kingdom on this earth. And these disciples are afraid that this storm is going to destroy them all. Have you forgotten all that I have done and all that I have told you? Do you still have no faith? How can this be? So we too can experience unnecessary anxiety when we encounter the storms of life. We need to etch Jesus' words on our hearts. Dear Kamahi, he will take us through And notice the response that the disciples have in verse 41. And they became very much afraid. Uh, Remember, these disciples, they've seen Jesus heal a man with an impure spirit. They've seen him heal many diseased and demon-possessed people. Uh, They've seen him heal a leper and heal a paralyzed man. And they've had a good dose here of Jesus' humanity. And of Jesus' compassion toward people. And yet here, what do they witness? They witness him by the sheer force of his word. Hush. Be still. Calm a very powerful tempest. So their initial response is not one of relief, but rather fear. And so they say to one another, Who then is this 
that even the wind and the sea obey him. Who is this person that can simply utter a word and calm the seas? Who are we dealing with here? Jesus' power as deity has now made these disciples feel very uncomfortable. Jesus has been trying to help them to perceive his divinity. Perhaps now they're beginning to ask the question, is this the creator? This is important because of what Jesus had to do in his mission that God had given him in his incarnation, and that involved going to the cross of Calvary, suffering and dying for the sins of mankind, not, not for his own sins, but, but as a substitute, one who would bear the sins of mankind on himself and die in our place. And to do that, he, he had to be more than just a mere sinful man. He had to be God. He had to be a sinless person. So progressively, he's revealed himself to his disciples, and they're just like us, are they not? Slow and confused. And this has now resulted in fear, but Jesus, the God-man, patient and gentle, reveals himself slowly and gradually. Um, as believers, we are dual citizens. Um, just, uh, I guess, about a week ago or a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, the Cranks, those of you that are on the missions committee, you probably received an email from them, and they had passports, uh, which allowed them to go through. Uh, they had U.S. passports and Filipino passports. So, uh, back in 2003, uh, 2003 or 2008, 2008, uh, my wife, uh, we, we waited for a while, but she, Glenn she, she went and got naturalized as a U.S. citizen. So, I'll tell you, she's more official than I am. So, uh, she got this, you know, I got that rinky-dink uh, Alabama certificate, and she's got this Nice paper certificate, all this. It was like Federal Reserve printing on it. So, nice thing. She's more official than I am. So, but uh, I could be a, I could identify, seriously, I could identify as a Filipino if I wanted to. Because I'm married to a Filipina. So, all we got to do is file the paperwork. So, if I did that, they'd all call me Joe. So that's what they call you in the Philippines, Joe. So they see a big white guy. So, uh, But, uh, you know, we celebrate this time of year. We celebrate our independence. We celebrate our citizenship here on earth. But uh, this will meet its end. Uh, yet our citizenship in heaven will never end. In Isaiah's day, the, uh, just to leave you with a little bit of, I think there's a good way to summarize all of this, but in Isaiah's day, the, the old world was falling apart. 
It was breaking apart. And what was happening was there was a new world order that was arising. Uh, Babylon had conquered Assyria and was expanding aggressively in Judah's direction. And what this required was an increased level of trust. Because you got the old guard that's devolving and falling away and a new guard that is arising. And so Isaiah writes this and he says this. Even to your old age, this is Isaiah 46.4. If you want to go and look at this, this is a great verse. So, Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you, and I will carry you. I will sustain you, and I will rescue you. I want you to notice this. This is unilateral. Uh, I made you. I will carry you. It's not dependent on anything you've done. I will sustain you, and I will rescue you. There are no contingencies here. There are no ifs, okay? This is based solely on the promise of God. Paul wrote this to the Philippians. He said, for I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it all the way until the day of Jesus Christ. And Paul is speaking of the day that we see Jesus when our earthly journey is complete. It's a promise. He carries us and he helps us day to day, sanctifying us by his grace. What God has begun, our salvation, he will complete In conclusion, it is my hope that we will walk day to day with greater confidence in Jesus' ability. He has shown us here through Mark's record here that we are not going to perish in the storms of life. He has gone before us conquering the ultimate storm of death itself. Hush, be still. So, walk with confidence in a day when everybody else's illusions are being shattered. Be a light. So, and just as Jesus has stated to these disciples here, so he says to us, Let us go to the other side. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we bless you that you have gone before us, that you have endured the ultimate storm of life, rejection, suffering, death, and yet you have conquered it all. We bless you for this great record that we have 
from your servant Mark. It has so much to teach us. And I pray that we would not just receive it, but that we would live it out in a time where so many are having their illusions shattered. Give us strength, Father, to witness in this day. We pray your mercy on our land and we lift up one another as there are so many here that are experiencing storms of different kinds, leading them to be fearful. Father, help them and assure them that you will indeed and take them to the other side. So we ask for your divine encouragement and we pray that you would give us greater trust. And we pray that as we live our lives day to day that we would exhibit a greater confidence in you so that when the storms arise, we will turn to you and we will trust in you more dependably than we do today. We ask all of this for the sake of Christ our Lord. Amen. This song that we're about to do is um, a song that captures the events leading up to the crucifixion and in the midst of the crucifixion from the perspective of the nails that were fashioned by men to murder the Son of God. Daryl spoke of the perfect sacrifice. Um, what's amazing to me, I, my, my, my mind can't comprehend this. Um, God's eternal plan, past, present, and future, <clears throat> was to provide the perfect sacrifice. Second Corinthians 5.21, Paul puts it this way. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And the phrase that blows my mind right there is, he made him to be sin. So um, the song captures the crucifixion and the events leading up to it from the perspective of the nails. And the point of the song is men did not create those nails. God the Father ultimately created those nails. And it was all his perfect divine plan, perfect sacrifice, as Daryl said, being carried out. to give me form this flame it 
melts my dreams I glow with fire and fury As I'm twisting like a vine My final shape, my final form I'm sure I'm bound to find Dream a little, dream for Sure. 
it's untold But my dreams are not the issue here For they, the hammer holds This task before me may seem unclear But it, my maker, holds thankful we are forever thankful for the sacrifice um, that the Lord Jesus made for us what blows my mind is God the Father made him to become sin for us so um, I hope you guys have an awesome fourth if I can I'd like to close this in prayer Father forgive us Lord for trying to extract life out of anything except for your son, Lord. We are guilty of that. We often return back to a yoke of slavery. Lord, thank you that you've already made provision for forgiveness for that sin, Lord. Father, help us this week as we're going about whatever we do, Lord, relationships, work, goals, whatever it may be, God. Lord, would you help us to extract those things from the life of Jesus and nothing else, Lord. Thank you for today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Thank you.